So the Finneys are going to a new city, which makes me ask the question, what's your favorite city? Phoenix, huh? Someone was like, I will answer that right away. I don't, that's not even an introspective question. Easy. All right, Phoenix. So what do you, what do you judge that by? What, what makes you think a city is good or bad? Is it the weather? When I hear Phoenix, I automatically think of the weather. A lot of people fit, pick Phoenix for the weather, except for right about now through August, right? In fact, that's exactly why I wouldn't say Phoenix. Uh, the weather. <laughs> so what is it? Is it the weather? Some people like cold weather. And there's no way Phoenix will ever hit their top list. Some people choose weather and there's no way they'll ever live in anywhere like Wyoming because, well, the wind will drive you away or just blow you away, literally. So what do you choose? Well, how do you choose a, a city? Is it the people? Is it the people that make the city? Maybe it's the amenities. I know a lot of younger people love different cities for the amenities. You know, the concert venues, the museums. Maybe it's the size. Growing up in Denver, I always thought Denver was the best city. I know some people will disagree with me. I'm not here to get in an argument with you. But growing up in Denver, I loved it. And I used to work for an airline. I would travel all over the world. And every city I ever went to, excluding Oklahoma City, sorry, Oklahoma City, I would never live there. But every other city, I always thought, I could live here. This is a pretty cool city. I could live here. Of course, I was only seeing the best parts of those cities. But when I got home to Denver, I would think, this is home. And I would love it because it was my home. And then De Denver grew. I think it's doubled since I moved away. And traffic became a nightmare. And then I got married, and Jen and I moved to Cheyenne. And I thought, wow, smaller cities are nice. I could definitely like the smaller city. No traffic. In Denver, I would always have to plan at least a half hour to get somewhere. In Denver, or in Cheyenne, I was always like 15 minutes early because you could get anywhere in that city in 15 minutes, but I was still leaving a half hour ahead. And I loved Cheyenne. I fell in love with the size of Cheyenne and the outdoor amenities of Cheyenne. And then we felt a stirring. It might have been that Mother's Day where it snowed two feet or it might have been, you know, from November to May where the wind just blew. But we felt a stirring and God calling us somewhere else. And when we got to Flagstaff, immediately fell in love with this city. Fell in love with the church the first Sunday that we were here. First Sunday we met Lester and Suzanne, actually. And it was the people. It was the size. It was the access to the forest. So what do you look for in a city? What makes a city great to you? In all honesty, every city has its positives, and every city has its negatives. Today we're going to look at a city, though, with no negatives. A city that is truly the greatest city. Every city on earth that you truly think is great will fail in comparison to this city. So that's what we're going to study today as we continue our study through Revelation that we have titled Hopeful. We've titled it Hopeful because out of all humanity, Christians should have the most hope. And this book gives us hope. It gives us hope because we know how it's going to end. Although the cities will fail us, the amenities that we thought were so great when we were young will become a nuisance when we're older. 
The energy of a city that we absolutely loved will diminish. But we know that in the end, God will restore everything to what it, would, what it should be. So that's why it's hopeful, because we know that although things here will fail, in the end, God is victorious, and in the end, we will receive a reward. So we're picking up in chapter 21, verse 9, and we'll go all the way through 22, verse 5. This is the entirety of the fourth vision. At 22.6, there will be an epilogue. So we're going to just boogie on through the fourth vision today. Revelation is outlined by four visions. We've walked through the first three, and today we will examine the fourth one. So let's read it. Then came one of the seven angels, who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three great gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass." And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into the glory of and honor of the nations. But nothing clean will ever enter it, or anyone who does not or who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever 
endeavor. So thinking about this, first off, just uh, there will be no night. And you know, we get tired. Some of us are really tired right now. We've been running hard all week. And reading that, you're like, wow, I'm going to be really tired. I mean, there's no night. When am I going to sleep, man? I need some sleep. I need some rest. And I think, first of all, we need to recognize that we won't be in need of rest because we'll find true rest in Christ. So right now, our bodies have been corrupted through sin, and because of that corruption, we need rest. But at this time, we will enter full rest by being with Christ, and our bodies will no longer be corrupt, so we will no longer need that rest. That's just a little side note that I have as I was reading and thinking about the tiredness some people have right now. So let's go all the way back to to, uh, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. So if you remember, all the way back in chapter 17, the the third vision started off in a similar manner. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. Now if we go back to the second vision, the seven bowls were the bowls of wrath that God had poured out on the earth to judge the earth. So this is connecting the second vision with the third vision with the fourth vision. And in particular, what it's doing is contrasting the third and fourth vision. So the third vision was all about the judgment of Babylon the Great and the great prostitute. So we see there will be two women. There will be Babylon the Great, who is also called the great prostitute. And throughout the third vision, she will be judged. And then she will find her eternal dwelling place in hell for eternity. That is contrasted with the bride. Those who belong to Babylon the Great, those who belong to the great prostitute, are those who have never put their faith and trust in Christ. And they have an eternal destiny. Those who are part of the bride of Christ are those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. And they also have an eternal destiny. And so we got the description of the eternal destiny for those who have never put their faith and trust in Christ, who are a part of Babylon the Great, the great prostitute. Now we get the description of those who have put their faith and trust in Christ and what they will receive. So he says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit. So this is where we see that this is a third vision. With each vision, he is carried away in the spirit. This is showing that he is seeing a third vision. Or sorry, a fourth vision. Fourth vision. So he is into his fourth vision. To a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out, from, uh, out of heaven from God. So we see this... Uh, Jerusalem. There's going to be a description. It's going to be actually a square... And it's coming down out of heaven, out of the throne room of God. So we've got to talk about a couple things here, and that is, if you remember, the earth and space were dissolved in front of God previously. So all of known physical creation dissolved before his holy presence. And we talked a little bit about this last week, how God is holy, and when, when Adam sinned, there was corruption brought into the world. That is why disease and death exist. Because when Adam rebelled against God, corruption came into not just humanity, but all of creation. And so when God's holy presence makes an appearance physically within the physical universe, everything that is corrupt will dissolve before his presence. I think 
we can't describe, or we, we need to just kind of grab a hold of how awesome God's holiness is. We talk about God a lot, but we forget how awesome his holy presence is. The fact that his holy presence, just his presence alone, makes everything that is physical, that is corrupt, dissolve in front of him, should produce some kind of awe. When we think about the Grand Canyon, oftentimes we're in awe. When we look at the ocean and the vastness of the ocean, oftentimes we're in awe. All of those things that are physical on this earth, the mountains we stand before and are in awe of, all of those things that make us in awe will dissolve. I heard there were some high schoolers that hiked Mount Humphreys today. You get to the top and you look around, you were in awe, weren't you? Yeah, it was awe-inspiring. It's going to dissolve before God's holy presence. How awesome is that? It's going to dissolve before his holy presence. So then, where is this new Jerusalem coming from? So, heaven described, there were two, uh, two things heaven would describe. First was space, and that's going to dissolve. But heaven was also a reference to God's dwelling place. It wasn't always space. So sometimes we get that confused, and we read heaven, and we think that they thought God just dwelled off in space somewhere. Heaven was also a description of God's dwelling place. So we can't, we can't describe it exactly, but we know that this new Jerusalem is going to come down out of God's dwelling place. Now, we'll get into it a little bit more because this is going to be a square, and some people are kind of baffled by the physical or the physics of this new Jerusalem. But if you remember, the earth has dissolved, the physical world has dissolved, which means all of our physics are going to dissolve as well. And when God creates a new heaven and new earth, when God brings a new Jerusalem out of his dwelling place, we don't know what type of physics will accompany it. God is the creator of science. In fact, Christians started studying the physical world because before Everybody thought that like every, everything was just kind of random. It was all chaos, that there was no order. And a bunch of Christians started saying, wait, if there is a creator, then there must be a created order. And so we should start studying that. And that's how the scientific method and the study of the physical world began. It was through Christians. There is not tension between Christianity and science. There might be a little tension between Christianity and some scientists, but Christians should embrace science. We should embrace the physical study of the world because we know that there is a creator who created the physical world. So God is the creator of physical science. He is the creator of the world. He's the one that put all of this in motion. He made the laws that we study when it comes to physical science, and when he creates a new heaven and new earth, he can create new laws. That's the way God can operate, because he's just that big. So we don't need to get too caught up in, is this symbolic, or is this literal? And some people say, well, there's no way this can be literal, because, uh, because this doesn't fit the physical science, this doesn't fit physics. Well, God can create new physics. That's the whole point that I want to get at with that. So, uh, so the holy city is going to come out of the dwelling place of God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And I think the point here that we need to get at is that it is God's glory that is going to be coming with this city. 
So it's not actually the city itself that has glory. It is the city reflecting God's glory. And the rest of the description about this city is going to be all about God's glory, but it's going to be about how the city reflects God's glory. I think this is important for us as a church as well, because part of our job as a church is to reflect the glory of God to the world today. We don't often take that very seriously. Now, don't get me wrong, no matter how seriously we take it, we're going to do a poor job. We're just not perfect. No matter which church you go to, it's not going to be a perfect church. Every church is going to have flaws, just like you have flaws. But one of our jobs here on this earth is to show the world God's grace and his glory. So what are you doing with your life to reflect God's glory? Now keep in mind, it's not your glory. It is God's glory. What are you doing? Seniors, as you're getting ready to go into the world, I hate that phrase in all honesty, you're already in the world. You are already living. What are you doing to reflect God's glory? So that's the point. The city is going to reflect God's glory. And as we read through the rest of this description, let's not get too caught up on the beauty of the, of the city. Don't get me wrong, the city is beautiful, but its beauty is really in reflecting God's glory. And if you'll notice, everything that is beautiful about the city is only beautiful because it's there to reflect. So as we talk about the jewels, the jewels are there to reflect. So let's keep going. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, so, in antiquity, in biblical times, walls were there for defense. In fact, cities typically had to have two things. They had to have water and walls. The, wa the water was there for life. If you didn't have water, you couldn't live. And, and a city or an enemy could easily lay siege to you, and you would dehydrate very quickly. But the walls were there for defense. So you needed walls and you needed water. If you did not have walls, an enemy could come, lay, they wouldn't even need to lay siege. They would just come and kill you. That's it. So you needed walls and you needed water. So that's the point of this wall that's coming is for defense. But I thought all the enemies were already destroyed. They were dissolved and were put in hell for eternity. What's the deal with the walls? The walls represent security. We struggle with security in this world. It is a broken, fallen world full of broken and fallen people. And therefore, physically, we are not secure. Even if you live in the most secure country in the world with the greatest defensive forces in the world, you are still not secure. It doesn't matter how many cameras you put in your house, how many defensive things you put in your house, you're not secure. But in this city, you will have the security of Christ. So although there won't be a need for a defensive wall, that wall will be there to remind you that you have security in Christ, that Christ is there to protect you. 
So I had this great high wall with 12 gates, and, the gate, and at the gates, 12 angels. So these angels are there. Angels are simply messengers for, for God. These angels are there to greet humans into the city. And on the gates, names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So we see that God is still uh, uh, has a place for Israel and is actually honoring Israel in this city. Uh, so we see that the gates give access. Uh, so this signifies that, that through God used Israel to allow man to have access to him. Once again, God is holy. Man is sinful. We have corrupted. Therefore, we could not have access to God. But God used Israel to send a Messiah, to send the Christ, who lived a perfect life and died a penalty so that you could then have access to God. Every single one of us have sinned, have rebelled against God. Every single one of us have shaken our fist against God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And the result is separation from God. God says, okay, but you can't be in my presence now because I am holy and you are no longer holy. And the result is we all deserve death. We all deserve eternal separation from God. But God used Israel to send Christ. And Christ, who lived a perfect life, who did not deserve death, died on the cross for your rebellion. Died on the cross for your sin. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ, when you come to God and you say, God, I confess that I have rebelled against you, that I deserve death, but I also believe that you died on the cross for me because you love me so much. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, he makes you holy, he makes you righteous, and he gives you access to himself. You no longer need a priest. You no longer need some divine saint. You have access to God. He used Israel to give you that access. And so we see the 12 tribes on the, uh, inscribed on the gate to to be symbolic, that you now have access, that God used Israel to give you access to God. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. So not only does this wall have gates that give you access, but it also has these foundations. And on those 12 foundations were the names of the 12 apostles. So just as the 12 tribes represent Israel, the 12 names of the apostles represent the church. So God built the foundations of the church on these apostles, and we see that he uses the church as well in this city. What's also interesting is that the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes are both part of the foundation and the gates and the wall. And so although God still has a place for Israel, we see that Israel and the church are married in the wedding or in the wedding supper. So in that marriage supper of the lamb, it's not just Christ and the church, but it's also Israel and the church. And we see that the two are no longer divided, but the two become one. This is important for us to recognize today because there are still some Christians out there, some people who claim to be Christ followers who are anti-Jew, who are anti-Semitic, 
And that has no place in the church. The Jewish people were called out by God to be God's special people by which he would bring a Messiah that would save us all. And he still has a place for the Jewish people. And beyond that, at at the end time, there will be no distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore. We will all be one people under God. And this goes beyond just anti-Semitic people. This goes to any racist ideology. It has no place in the church because we are all one in Christ. If we're still holding on thinking that our race is better than any other race, we haven't fully embraced what God has done in the church. We have totally ignored the gospel that in Christ all are equal. And that's something to celebrate and something we will celebrate in the new heaven and new earth, in the new Jerusalem. There will be no longer a fight between ethnicities. There will no longer be a fight between races. But we will embrace each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold. What better way to measure a a, a city of gold than a measuring rod of gold, right? To measure the city and its gates and walls. Now the point is to reveal the glory of God. Some people get caught up in the measurements of the city, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but we don't want to miss the point. The point is the measurements reveal the glory of God, okay? The city lies four square its length, the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Now a stadia is about 1,500 miles, so in America we can think of from like New York to Houston. That's how big the city is, right? That's a big city. We think New York is a big city. We're like, man, I just love Flagstaff. It's just that small city feel. That's going to be a big city. But to take this from perspective of John's original, original audience, this would actually measure from about Spain to Babylon. That encompasses the entire Roman Empire. And the point is, you think the Roman Empire is really something. You think the Roman Empire is really great. It's all, it will be, the whole empire will be encompassed by this one city. By this amazing city that God's going to bring. It will, the Roman Empire will look like rubbish compared to God's city. So that's the point of this measurement, right? And then he says, its length and width and height are equal. So this is where a lot of debate comes in, because what you've got here is a cube. One really big cube. And some people are arguing, and once again, they'll bring physics into it, of like, that city can't even exist on Earth. Can you believe how far up that city's going to go? We're reaching into space. There's no way. Well, I think we're missing the point, and I don't even want to debate whether this is literal or figurative. Once again, we know that God's going to create this new world, and so the physics can be totally different, so we don't need to get caught up on that. But what's the point? It's a cube, and where do we find a cube in the Old Testament? And that is the Holy of Holies. 
in the temple where you would in, where God's Shekinah glory was dwelling among the Israelites, where the Israelites would go and they'd go have to go through a purification ritual, and they couldn't even go into the Holy of Holies, but they want to get close to the Holy of Holies because that was a way that they would try to communicate with God. And so I think the whole point of this measurement, that it's a cube, and I think John's audience would have picked up on it right away, is that this is the Holy of Holies. This is where God's presence dwells. That his whole city will be filled with his glory. That he will dwell in this city. That's the point. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement. Human measurement, he's just simply explained that this isn't some foreign measurement. This is a, a measurement that we can fathom, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while it is also an angel, sorry. The wall was built with jasper, which is, uh, the city was pure gold, like clear glass. So 18 through 21 is going to describe the glory of the city, and as he describes the glory of the city, I want us to think about the throne room. So if you can go all the way back to chapter 4, that was months and months ago. But it's similar in this description. And once again, the point of the cube is that it's going to be God's dwelling place. The point of this description, which resembles the throne room description, is that it will be God's throne room. And what's the whole point? Once again, it's that this is where God will dwell. No more wondering if God is far off. No more feeling lonely at times because you don't know if God is really speaking to you. Not all of us always hear the voice of God calling us to a new city. Sometimes it feels like, God, are you even really there? There will be no more questioning. It will be very abundant. This is God's dwelling place. And we get to be there with him. So like the, the city was pure gold, like clear glass. This is a gold that we don't even know of. I don't know if you knew that or not, but we haven't found the gold that is pure, like pure glass yet. So this is a heavenly gold. The foundation of the wall was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. So each one of these stones is going to be a different color. And remember, the whole purpose of this city is to reflect God's glory. So if you can think about all of these different metals and jewels, all with different colors, reflecting God's glory, and how amazing that would be. When we had the stained glass like paper cutouts on the walls, a lot of people commented on how pretty that was. There is the stained glass behind this uh, screen these days. One of, the, one of the things that made us hesitate putting the screen over here was that the stained glass was pretty and people enjoyed looking at it. And those stained glasses will be nothing compared to the color and the brilliance that we will see in this city. But let's not get caught up too far into that because we remember that the whole point is that it's God's dwelling place and that it reflects God's glory. And that's where 22 catches us. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. There's no longer a need for the temple. The temple for the Old Testament Jew was the place 
to go and connect with God. His Shekinah glory was there, reassuring them of his presence. And it's no longer needed because his presence is there with them. Even till to this day, uh, the welling wall is where a lot of Jews believe that is the closest you can get to the temple. And so they'll go to the welling wall and they'll put their prayers on the welling wall and they'll pray because they believe that they are somehow closer to God because they're closer to the temple. And the whole point of this is that God will be with us every day. We will get to experience his presence. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives light and its lamp is the Lamb. So here it is that, that we will have eternal light. Once again, the, the heavens and the earth have dissolved in front of him. And so we no longer have a sun, but we don't need the sun because God's glory will radiate throughout the entire city. By its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And I want to highlight this and then also verse 26. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And the whole point of this is when in antiquity, in biblical times, when one nation would conquer another nation, they would gather up all the wealth of that nation and all of the political officers, and in particular the highest political officer, hopefully the king didn't die, and they'd bring the king and all of the wealth and they would parade it back into the city to show off the glory of the conquering city. This is what that is symbolic of, except instead of the victory, what it is showing is conversion. This is a reference to the kings that recognized that they were also in rebellion against God, and yet they knew that God's glory was greater. And so they put their faith and trust in Christ, and so they have been converted, and now they are bringing glory to God as a way of declaring that God is greater. And that's what the nations are doing. That's what everyone will do who has put their faith and trust in Christ. Verse 25, and the gates will never be shut. Why even have a gate if it's never going to close? The purpose of a gate was to close during wartime or at nighttime when, when your defenses were down, when you needed security and safety. And the whole point, although the wall is showing us that we are secure in Christ during this time, the gates show us that we have no fear because we, have always, we always have access to God. That's the point of the gates. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does, does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we already learned that no corrupt thing could withstand the glory of God. The earth and space dissolved. Nothing corrupt, no sin, no rebellion could exist. And so that he's reinforcing that point. But those who are written in the Lamb's book of life have been made righteous. And so they can enter the city. And the question that we should be asking ourselves is, how do I get into the Lamb's book of life? Is it through bribe? That's not it. Is it through works? You know, if I could just work hard enough, and, and you know, if, if God is tallying my good works versus my bad works, I just need to make sure I have one good work enough over my bad works. And that's not it. In the book of Isaiah, he says, your good works are like dirty rags. Your good works can't get you into the book of life. 
the only thing that can get you into the book of life, that can get you into this eternal state, is by confessing, God, I have rebelled against you, and putting your faith and trust in his work on the cross. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. What's interesting to me at this then, starting in chapter 22, is I think the angel takes him further in. I think John had gotten so caught up in the glory of the city and how God's glory was being reflected in the city that he lost sight of other things. And so the angel has to take him further into the city and show him more about the city. So often we hear these descriptions of heaven and we get kind of bored with it, right? Like, oh man, we're going to be able to fly, or we're, we're, we're so focused in on like what we want in heaven, we forget the real purpose of heaven, and that's the relationship with God. But then some people think all we're going to do is sit and worship God, and that's going to get boring. And I don't think that's it at all. I think continually God, who is infinite, will reveal himself more and more to us, infinitely, forever in a loop. He will reveal himself, and we will go further in constantly. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, they continually go further up and further in. And I think that's such a great picture of heaven, that we will never get bored because things will just be continually being more real to us. Right now we see a shadow of God. In heaven, we will see him and fully experience him. And yet, because he is infinite and we are finite, we will never fully experience all of him. But throughout eternity, we get to experience him more and more and more. We will go further up and further in experiencing God. And I think that's what's happening here, is that he was so caught up in the glory of the city, the angel has to like take him and be like, Let's go further up and further in and experience more of the glory of God. And so he shows them a river that, uh, the water, of the water of life. Now, we know that how important water is. We're experiencing it right now with Lake Powell being at record lows. Water is important. Those of us who live in Dhoni Park, we also know how bad water can be. How hard water produces grit and grime, and no matter how hard you scrub, the hard water stains are still there. This will not be hard water. Sometimes the water is so hard it gives me a stomach ache. This won't be water that is bitter that will give you a stomach ache. It will be pure, and it will be refreshing. Have you ever been so dehydrated that you felt like you were going to die? And that first sip of that Cool, refreshing water hits your lips. It's so refreshing. And that's what he's describing here. Is we will be refreshed, we will be renewed by pure water. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So it's not just going to be refreshing water, but it's going to be refreshing water coming from the very source of life. And that very source of life is God. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Now, this is a singular tree of life, and so there's a little bit of debate because it's a singular tree of life, and yet it's going to be on both sides of the river. I think it's describing the type of tree that, it, that is going to exist, and that type of tree will be the tree of life. So right here, uh, one verses 1 all the way through 5, 
are actually an undoing of Genesis 3. If you remember Genesis 3, uh, man sins, we shake our fist at God, we have rebellion, and then upon that, we are kicked out of the garden, we're separated from the tree of life, and then we receive curses as well. Now, I think that those curses were actually a blessing in that they drove us back to God. God realized in our rebellion that we needed him, and yet without these curses, without the futility of life, we would be content without him. So he blesses us with curses that make us, that drive us back to God. When you feel helpless, when you feel hopeless, you turn to God. The futility of life and death itself is a blessing to turn us back to God. So he is now, because we are in his presence at that time, he is now undoing all of the curses found in Genesis 3. And so not only do we get a tree of life, but we get a whole orchard of the tree of life. So we get this whole orchard, and it will bear 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So every month we're going to get a new, absolutely fantastic type of fruit. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Though we are in heaven This lets us know that there will be some scars. And it is the presence of God and these leaves that he gives us that will heal these scars. The world is broken. And that brokenness hurts. Even within the church, there are several of us that have been hurt by church. Whether it's people in the church or a whole group of churched people. We've been hurt. There's some scars. These leaves are going to heal us, and we will be healed of that hurt. We will be healed of that pain. No longer will there be anything accursed, and this is really specific uh, undoing of Genesis 3 and the curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So this is in direct contrast with those who received the mark of the beast, those who pledged their loyalty to the beast, and this is showing that God will be our master, that we will say, God, I no longer want to live in rebellion. God, I no longer want to be the one that calls the shots, but God, I want you to be Lord of my life. And night will be no more. They will need no light, of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we will be worship him as his servants, and yet we will also reign with him forever and ever. Oftentimes when we talk about heaven, we talk about the streets of gold, and we we idolize heaven, and we talk about all these things we want to do in heaven, and I think that's why we get kind of bored with the idea of heaven. Because we miss the point. The point of heaven isn't all that we will get to do, but it will be who we get to enjoy. And that is God. Our relationship with God will be fully restored. Your heart desires all kinds of things in this life. And all those things that your heart desires are really just a shadow of what you really desire. 
You see, each one of us has a God-sized hole in our heart, and yet we keep trying to fill it with different things. And when we picture heaven, oftentimes we picture it with these different things that we think will finally fulfill us. So after my first wife died, I, I joined a grief group. And I remember someone in that grief group was so mad because they heard that Jesus had said, we won't be married in heaven. And she was like, if I can't go to heaven and be married to my husband, then I don't even want to go. And she thought that her husband would fill that God-sized hole in her heart, and she was so off. If what, you're, if what you're desiring in heaven is certain things or certain people, you've missed the point of heaven. We will be so overwhelmed with God's glory and God's presence that we won't care if we're married or not anymore. You won't care if you finally got that gold car or that gold house. You won't care about all these material things that you're trying to fulfill your life with because that hole in your heart will finally be full with God. That's the point of heaven. You've got a God-sized hole in your heart. Are you trying to fill it with other things right now? Are you willing to say, God, my hole in my heart can only be filled by you? And when you do that, you will find true contentment. Even if a spouse dies, even if you lose everything in a fire. Now, don't get me wrong, those things still hurt, there's still pain. But when you've put your faith and trust in Christ and you pursue God to fill that hole, you can be content even in the hurt. So you've got a God-sized hole in your heart. What are you doing to fill it? Pursuing other things or looking towards the one and only that can truly fill it, God? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this description of heaven that that reflects your glory. And we're sorry, we're sorry for making heaven about us, for making about all these other things that we think heaven should be about, riches and gold. Help us to realize that it is really all about you. Help us to realize that we have a God-sized hole in our heart that can only be filled by you. Help us to quit pursuing all these other things that we think will fill it. Knowing that when we fill it with you, we will be truly content. In your name we pray. Amen.